you make this experience of a completely quiet mind. And that gives you an understanding of, you know, what, what we talk about with, when you say to be free. You know, usually we're just dragged around by our opinions and by our likes and dislikes. But if this stops, then you get an expression of, wow, that's the freedom. And that's also a different happiness. You won't experience that. Well, at least I didn't experience that in any other circumstances in my life. And I've tried a lot. Arna Schaefer, Gita Popesnim, began practicing in the Tibetan Kagyu tradition, or the Diamond Way tradition, in 1990. But in 1992, he sat a two-day retreat with Zen master Sungsan in Berlin and has practiced with the Quantum School of Zen ever since. In April of 2010, Arna received Inca, or permission to teach, from Zen master Wu Bong, and today he serves as the guiding teacher of the Zen centers in Dresden, Bad Bramstedt, and a Zen group in Hamburg. In 2010, Arna started Mind Sweets, a small confectioner specializing in organic sweets. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Arne, I wanted to, I guess, go back to 1990. Uh, You were in the, you were starting with the Tibetan tradition. And is that because you, that was what was around you or what was available? Or maybe you had a friend or had you been, had you heard something? How did you get started in that, in that tradition? Yeah, that mainly was because I was traveling in India. Uh, I think that was, yeah, I was there for uh, two and a half months. And I knew when I was uh, going to India that I wanted to go to the Himalayas. And I had an image in my mind, the Dalai Lama and the mountains and, you know, these Tibetan monks. So I went up to the to the mountains and I ended up in Dharamsala. Actually, everybody who goes to India, namely to, to the north and wants to learn something about Tibetan Buddhism, goes to Dharamsala, which is a small, Magliot Ganj actually, it's a small village close to Dharamsala in the foot of the Himalayas. And there I did do the first courses. And of course, there was the Tibetan Buddhist practicing there. And that actually was the first time I saw Westerners ordained. And I thought, wow, you know, you, yeah. you can you can practice Buddhism as a Westerner. I just was, you know, 
having some meditation experience so far, and I was just curious, but I didn't have a clear image at all about Buddhism and all the different uh, schools, traditions, and regions. The only person I knew was the Dalai Lama. And the funny thing is that the time I was there, he was in Germany and very close to my home. So we <laughs> completely <laughs> missed each other. Oh my gosh, that's but, funny. <laughs> but still, I had this impression, you know, you can imagine you have this beautiful Himalayan mountains and this nice people, lots of refugees and some uh, courses I joined there and Westerners, introducing Westerners and making their first experiences in meditation. So when I returned home, I was looking for a Tibetan uh, yeah, group, and the the one that appeared is the Kaju, the Diamond Way, which at that time was in Cologne. They are actually until today the biggest Buddhist community we have here in Germany. So I started to practice with them, but the practice itself is uh, slightly different from our Zen practice. So I was just open. I was just curious. I like the people. Everybody said, you have to meet the, the head of the school, you know, this all in Nidal. And uh, so I traveled to Hamburg to finally meet this uh, all in Nidal. <laughs> he was completely different from what I expected to be a Buddhist, highly Buddhist uh, teacher. So um, it was okay. It was a nice experience for me. So I right away took refuge. I really wanted to commit. And then I moved to Berlin because I noticed that the studies I've started to do in Cologne were not actually that what I was looking for. And I decided I will move to Berlin. That's the biggest capital or the biggest city we have in Berlin, in Germany. It was shortly after the wall has come down. So that was a wonderful place, you know, just great place to be there as a young student, you know, this Western Berlin and Eastern Berlin matching you had the possibility as a student to study at three universities at the same time you could go to the free university in the west which was founded or supported mainly by by the u.s american government uh in the 50s and then you had the humboldt university now in the east which was you know an old traditional university and there they had the typology as a as a subject very small i think we were just eight students so i joined there for well, i think one semester or two semester it was just great at that time to be here and, uh, and one day a friend of mine said you know there's a zen teacher coming to the university giving a talk i will go though you want to join and i said yes <laughs> i have no idea you know <laughs> no idea about you know zen of course some idea ahead, but I didn't know anything about Korean Zen or whatever. So I was sitting in the audience, and the speaker that was there at that time was um, uh, later Wubong Zen Master. At that time, he was Dhamma Master Pop Mu. Oh, yeah. Sure. And, uh, and I remember, you know, I was sitting there in the audience, and he was speaking about this, don't know, before thinking mind. And that really got me. Mm -hmm. And I, I really wanted to get it i really wanted to understand it you know understanding of course is, is not the right way to approach it but i could notice this this what he was talking about and also the um stories i will i still have in mind which story he he, he talked about and uh you know famous kongan it really touched me i really wanted to understand it and it took me i think another half a year until I could join the first retreat, which was then in 92. 
Mm. And that was with uh, Dan Masters from Sean at that time. So I want to get to that in a second about your first retreat. But, you know, a lot of the time when we're talking about, you know, what propels a student, and we talk about a big question. And I'm curious if you, you know, here you are, you've, you've gone to India as a, I don't know how old you were, but early 20s, I guess, or maybe late teens. Um, yeah found your way up to Dharamsala, uh, studying religion in university. Like, do you have any memories of like, what was driving you then? You know, I was, I was uh, raised in a small town in West Germany and pretty healthy environment. So I have good economic background, my family, everything was wonderful until I had to realize before I turned 18, that my mother had cancer. And uh, she had um, leukemia for several years, and I understood she was sick, but I never understood that it was cancer. So uh, suddenly I had to realize that, and at that time, the prognosis wasn't so good anymore. So within half a year, I had to face, I'd lose my mother, and... I uh, still wanted to believe that, but finally, I, I remember that the night when she passed away, I was sitting at her bed, and I could witness how, how she left. That really hit me. It hit me so hard. I was really tumbling. I completely lose the ground. I have never, ever in my life experienced such a sadness and such a loss. I didn't have any idea of how it would feel to live to lose my mother so that really shaped me and since then i was really looking 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 for the sense of this life i just didn't have this question so much before but this experience really hit me you know where is she where did she go you know what is what is this life about and so it's you know i finished my studies no not studies i finished my school and then at that time we had to do the um army service or instead social service. So I did do 20 months uh, social service. And in this 20 months, this wish ripened that I wanted to go to India. I have no idea why. And I, mm -hmm. I couldn't explain it, why I want to go to India. But I felt like here in this place, I will not learn so much, you know, uh, but I want to challenge myself. And it was really a, a need. It was, um, I had this, I was afraid I might not come back even. You know, mm -hmm. I was so afraid of this foreign... I've never been to Asia before, and India is a challenge. <laughs> yes, uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was, you know, going alone. I was 20, and I just packed my backpack, and I, I will not forget the moment when I was sitting in the airplane, and it was on the runway, and was leaving. I felt really very sad. I could see my, my father and my, my sister... Uh, waving their hands as goodbye and then you know i was gone and i i didn't know where i was going to i have no idea so i was there on my own and the first weeks were hard it was really difficult for me to be on my own and i started in indonesia actually but after six weeks i got used to that and this is i would say kind of it was a pilgrimage without knowing it is a pilgrimage but this time was very important for me to be away from my 
family, to be on my own, and to meet people from all over the world. That was so fantastic. You know, um, and you, you notice people actually basically are friends. Mm-hmm. And this world is a good place. And I could connect with anybody and anywhere. It was really great. I was on my own. I could join people for a while. I could continue my way as I wish. But this quest inside was really looking for some, some understanding, for some meaning. And uh, so uh, I have the strongest memory about this time in the Himalaya. I felt really strongly connected to this culture, to this Tibetan Buddhist culture. It's a beautiful environment anyway. The mountains are just great. But also, any temple I would see, any gompa, I would go there. I just loved to be in this environment. So uh, when I came back, after this four and a half months, I had to struggle to readjust to be back in the German society. It looked so strange to me the way how we live here. Such an abundance of anything. Too much. So inside of me, something has uh, been touched or, uh, yeah. And, and uh, it, it's, it, we're still looking for answers. So that's why my first studies didn't work out. I studied uh, to uh, study geology and geography. Uh, what is it? Geography? Is, is mm-hmm. it geography? Yep, geography. Yeah. And after two months, I noticed, no, I need to look into something different. So I was looking around philosophy, I was looking around religion and anthropology, and that was actually then the decision that I moved to Berlin to study religious studies, anthropology, and philosophy. Hmm. And so now, uh, you know, just to skip ahead again, back to you, you were studying, you had connected with these Tibetan teachers in Germany, um, and I, I'm assuming that for whatever reason, Christianity, which, you know, is, is pr- still present in Germany, mm-hmm. just wasn't, it just didn't draw you in the same way. And so you get invited to, to go sit a retreat, um, a two day retreat. And had you done, was that your first retreat or had you done no. a retreat? There was. I think the second retreat, I can say, you know, during this time of doing the social service, I could have a special week off to do a meditation retreat. That was actually guided by a Christian priest. And that was the first experience I made. I think I was 19 mm-hmm. of just sitting in silence, walking in silence, mindfulness uh, approaches to anything you do. And that was a wonderful experience already. I had weird expectations what might happen. I thought I would hear voices that would tell me some wisdom, whatever, because <laughs> I hadn't have any, any idea about what meditation was about. But that was my first retreat. Then I did do this uh, Tibetan uh, tradition for a while, but I never did truly a retreat. What they don't have this kind of practice that we know as Zen practitioners. You know, just sit and meditate. What they do is visualization. You do that together. Somebody is. Uh, saying the word, so it's a leaded meditation, so it's different. Uh, so the Zen retreat in 92 was, yeah, definitely the first Zen experience in this uh, pureness I made, and that was, again, like a revolution for me. This experience of just sitting there on a cushion, breathing in, breathing out, and not, you know, not becoming active, that was really hitting me. 
And that was, uh, again, you know, that uh, changed my life. I will never forget how I went back home. I knew this is what I want to learn. Because my mind is not so so quiet, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, I remember my first retreat, too. And it was, it's amazing, the opportunity to sit and it is. see. It is. Yeah. It's, you know, and without the people doing it, you wouldn't do it. But right. at that time, I think we were something like 40 people. For me, it was the first time. Uh, and I, I was oh, looking at huh? Yeah, at that time, you know, Susanthanim, he would attract people. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had his entourage traveling right. with him. <laughs> and we and the Berlin Zen Center just started, you know, there was um, Roland and Namhi, both of them have started, it, I think, in 89, was the first visit of Tungsan, pretty, pretty uh, short, uh, how he was, you know, very uh, intuitively, he, he just decided he wanted to come to, to Berlin, and they set up a retreat, and then they started with the Berlin Zen Center. So, yeah, uh, and I, I know without these people sitting there and doing the same thing, I probably would not have done it, but they really kept me going. And I could see how my mind was, you know, moving all the time. But I had these short moments, these very short moments when you get the glimpse of, ah, that's what this teaching is about. You know, that is when your mind really is just quiet and you just connect with the moment, there's nothing special going on, you're just completely in peace with the moment. And that was the first time I got the taste of what the Zen practice is about. Really connect with this moment and just be one with it. And not your mind dragging you to your uh, whatever, you know, to, to your desires you want to do. That's what I usually experience. You know, I have lots of ideas what I can do. And uh, it's, it's uh, the gift of a creative person, but it's sometimes as well uh, a burden to have a mind that's jumping around. But this experience of uh, having this completely quiet mind and just being there without anything special really hit me. It was the first time I understood what liberation means and what peace means. So that made me curious, and that was probably it. That's why I got, I got stuck to the quantum school. Right. And then really within a couple of years, or maybe... I, I'm Shortly thereafter, I'm not exactly sure, you went and sat for three months in Korea. You sat a three-month retreat. Right. That was in 93, so that was just... Oh, that's like in the next year. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. sat a two-day no, retreat, and you're like, all right, I'm right. ready for three no, months. It, it really got me. It really got me. You know, the same summer, I think this retreat in, was in April with uh, Zen Master Sung San, and in the summer, I went to Warsaw to sit the first summer Kyolche which was at that time only three weeks. But mm -hmm. already that I decided I'm going there with it. I want to know what three weeks mean. What is it? Right. So I went there for the three weeks. And in the three weeks, I met uh, two bongs and master. And I asked him, I said, you know, I want to do a three month retreat. What do you say? He said, yeah, come. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> next winter, I went there. And it was great. Great and experience. Really so, so you went to Korea to do it. Mm -hmm. And. Yeah, can you say a little bit about what what that that three month retreat was like? Yes. Um, again, I made this experience of having a very simple life. Actually, nothing 
going on. You know, you have your schedule. You get up very early in the morning. I think it is 3 a.m. 3 a.m. In, in Korea, and you just follow the schedule. In the beginning, you know, the funny thing is, in the summer, I fell in love with a girl, and um, and then I said to her, you know, it's not such a good timing. I'm planning a long retreat, and I'm going to India before. And she said, oh, no problem, I come with you. No. <laughs> so she came with me She came with me to India, and yeah. then we separated in Kathmandu. She flew back home, and I flew back to Korea. I still had this strong wish, although I had this, you know, new love. I still thought, no, this, if this is my love of my life, then it will last. If not, then okay. So I continued, went to Korea, but in the first, you know, this is really a silent retreat. You're not connecting anymore. And at that time, anyway, no email was there. So nobody could give any messenger. So you were really away for three months. And uh, so the first weeks, I was really uh, sick. Uh, you know, my mind was really longing for this new love and I was dreaming of her. But that after a while, I also went. And that was an interesting experience. I almost mistake it as I don't love her anymore, but that's not the same thing. It's just your mind is filled with, with um, enough, which is if you do a long retreat, just that what's happening. And the mind really gets empty. And then you have, and that was really touching me. You have a peaceful mind. Sometimes, other things would come up from the past and they would, you know, also be a surprise to see, you know, I remember that someday I could see a dish my mother cooked when I was a child and I loved it. I completely forgot about it. But then in this retreat, and I don't know, in the second month, suddenly it was right in front of me and smelling like it would be there. <laughs> so something, anything would appear. I, th I thought anything would appear. Just showing that your mind is really digesting a lot, yeah. which you don't your everyday life and then we had this intensive week which meant you know almost no sleep and really strong practice but you could notice there's a lot of energy that carries you through this so there were many things that touched me mainly it was the practice itself it really touched me deeply because you make this experience of a completely quiet mind and that gives you an understanding of you know what what we talk about with, when you say to be free, you know, usually we're just dragged around by our opinions and by our likes and dislikes. But if this stops, then you get an expression of, wow, that's a freedom. And that's also a different happiness. You won't experience that. Well, at least I didn't experience that in any other uh, circumstances in my life. And I've tried a lot, but that was really deep. So that, that I would say is one, one important uh, experience. And the second was, to connect with this culture in Korea because here in Berlin or in the West it's like a cult you know it's just few people doing it and you, you wear the robes and you make all the rituals and it's you know it can look a little bit weird uh, and you just are told you know this is the mokdak that's how you hit it that's a sutra that's how you sing it so you just do it but connect with that in Korea and to really understand that this is a really old and deeply rooted tradition and the whole society in Korea understands that. You know, when I was appearing with, with gray robes and a shaved head on the road, they started to bow to me. Uh -huh. And I was like, no, 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 I'm fake, you know. I'm yeah. not. They wouldn't understand that. They would not. You know, it's, for them, it's clear. Yeah. Shaved head, clothes, monk. So I had to behave like a monk. But also, it really touched me because um, 
I understood, wow, this is, this is something really deeply rooted. Uh, and, and that what we have now in the West, even if it's you know, just 40 years or 50 years, that Sumsantanim's teaching is uh, accessible for us, it's still connected to a very old tradition with a lot of experience and the richness that, that's a blessing. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I, you know, since the pandemic, I've been leading, sitting online for folks and, uh, you know, I do a reading after it. And one of the books I, I read with the people was Mirror of Zen by Zen, uh, Zen Master Susan. And, you know, this is, book was written in, I don't know, the 1600s, something like that. It's like 400 years ago. And it was so remarkable to me because it was to read Zen Master Sung San stuff here in the West. It sounds so, you know, he has his own flavor and stuff like that, but it was remarkable how strongly he was in this tradition. You know, they were using the same words, you know, 400 years apart and, uh, and Sung San had sort of refreshed it in a way that was, sort of um, made it available and exciting, I think, for this generation. But it was, you know, it straddled both of those things, sort of fresh and in this very deep tradition of, you know, don't know, yeah. of liberation. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, I think it's really a treasure. It's really a treasure. And the, the work we have to do is to kind of um, transform it to... To, so that we can really digest that, you know, and understand it and access it. I think it's more the access to access it and then already uh, digest it. And that's that's our challenge. And uh, without losing the ground or the, the deep roots in, in Korea, you know, I think it's and and the Quantum School is doing pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's my personal opinion about that. You know, to adapt it and to try and. Uh, and we are changing from from year to year. You can see that we are learning and trying and changing. And it's it's just great to see that still uh, all regions are sticking together. And, uh, this, and there's a strong connection. You can notice that. Actually, even outside our school, it was a really nice experience I made when I was joining a Rinzai retreat this year with a with a uh, Rinzai teacher. I went there, which was wonderful because I didn't bring my long robes. I just brought my short robes and I was mm -hmm. a beginner again. And it was so wonderful. You know, no, no, nobody knows me. Nobody knows me. <laughs> yeah, in this yeah that's school. great. That's a good feeling. It was just fantastic. And then they were asking, you know, okay, now we have work, uh, work, um, meditation. Who would clone the toilets? I said, yeah. I <laughs> know me. I was enjoying it to be completely back and, and uh, just be, be, be a beginner. And it was so wonderful to connect with these people. And I could notice this Lynchy lineage. You know, it's just a family lineage. It's even if it's Japanese and they have more rituals or different rituals, but you could really notice the mind is connecting so easily, even if forms differ a little bit, but to understand why we do forms and how we do that. That's so easy for us to connect with it. And I found it so great to notice, wow, you have much bigger family than you expected or than you thought. And uh, actually, I think that's, that's also what 
Hindustan has given us this, just this key to connect with any situation. Now, that was pretty easy because that's also a Zen tradition that's in our lineage. But what we really have to try in our everyday life, and you can see the challenges right now. Look, just look in your country. You know, we're all falling apart. Strong, strong opinions. But how do we reconnect? How can we use, you know, what we learn here to somehow not lose the bond? Still try to connect. It's not easy. It's really not easy. But the practice can really help us. If it's the pandemic or if it's the politics, it's really a great treasure to use how we can try to make things a little better. Well, that, that, that's a great opportunity, I guess, to sort of shift a little bit in terms of, you know, you're a Pope's name now, you're a teacher, um, and you have these students that come to you in the, these different Zen groups, Zen centers. And how do you, how do you guide them along the path of liberation in the sense that, you know, of course we all have to walk our own journey. You know, that's certainly part of the practice, right? Nobody's, nobody can do it for you. But nevertheless, we come to these teachers and we ask for help with these teachers. And as a teacher, how do you see yourself guiding these students that are, you know, asking for help? Yeah. So what I try to be as, um, um, how should I say, just as honest as possible, you know, don't try to pretend something. I'm not special. You know, you, you can get this impression easily. And I can see that students reflect yeah. that into you. You know, they have, they have this expectation. Oh, this is a teacher. This is, a, you know, if they, some people even don't understand the difference of a popsonim and a Zen master. It actually doesn't matter. So for all of them, you are the Zen right. master already. And, and they, they have their expectations and they put their uh, ideas into you. So one part of it uh, in, in an exchange with the students is just to be what I am, not different. You know, I'm not special. I, I'm just a person like them. Uh, you know, I have to go to the bathroom. I do the same thing. You have thing. to clean the bathroom. And I'm struggling with it. <laughs> right. And I love yeah. to do that, really. So, um, and, and that's actually the basis from where I can start to give, to encourage them not to give up because we all struggle. And that's part of the food or let's say that's, that's, that's actually what ripens our practice, that we have all these difficulties. That's really our food. How do we access that correctly? How do we use that? Then this becomes all small treasures. Even when you are again facing a situation where you're disappointed about yourself because you are becoming emotional and you're getting even angry, you are not behaving what you expect yourself from you, how you should be as a Buddhist or even a Buddhist teacher, you should react. But still, you're just a human being. You have your limits, but also you have a lot of potential. And, and um, always remember that. So that's why this practice is so important. That's why the meditation for me personally is always, it always helps. You know, I have my troubles. I get stuck. I have, you know, I struggle. And, uh, but I know, and that's where I have deep, deep, deep trust in the practice uh, because I've seen it so often how much it helps just to do it. Just, you know, whatever it is, but if I come back to, you know, 
not getting engaged right away if I'm in trouble, but rather slow down, take my time, I can see how everything settles and some clarity then appears. Is there something I have to do or is it better not to do anything? You know, Have patience, but also trust. And then you can see that um, that's, that's valuable for the students to give them the trust and they are okay. They have everything. There's nothing missing. They have it. And, and just um, need this trust, not to start to steer it up or make something, but rather, you know, trust yourself, believe in yourself. That's Buddha's teaching. We, we all have it. There's nothing special. And uh, rather slow down than become too active. And then you can make your experiences. You just try. And even if you fail, no problem. The failure is not the problem. The problem is always that we stick to some idea or some concept. And even if it's a nice idea of Zen and Buddhism and me as a holy teacher or whatever, these are only, all just hindrances. So as far as I can tell from my 10 years of being a teacher, I, I found that actually in, in the interviews that I have the most intimate. And I, I'm really extremely grateful for the students that have the trust, that they show up with anything. Uh, and then my responsibility is to, to, to give them a safe um, environment. They feel safe with me in the interview, but also safe with their lives, safe with, with their part, safe with their practice. So then when they leave the room, when they continue, they have this trust and this, this, Try mind again, you know, it's just this inspiration not to give up, whatever happens. Last thing we, we uh, want is somebody to stop. So what it needs is really whatever it is, just try. That's the teaching, you know, you read it in any letter of Susan you ever wrote, you know, try, try, try for 10,000 years. What does it mean? Yeah, never, never give up. And, you know, you can, you can drop your job. You can... Do many changes, but there's something you cannot give up. That is yourself. Yeah, you you have to struggle, or you have to deal with your conditions. You have to deal with what we call karma, which just means your strong habits. You can change anything outside, but this will still be there. So, how can you work with that? And yeah, I'm I've had many experiences where I could notice the practice really not only helped me. I think it really saved me. And that's what I can um, pass on. Yeah, I think that's what I appreciate most in a teacher is is almost like seeing in their own journey the truth of the experience, and it lets me know that it's available for me too. And I, I think that's also sometimes where where it can be so problematic as well, because we, you know, we, when, when a, when a teacher does something wrong or, you know, we've, whether we've projected it or not, um, there's this, this trust. It's something, it's so, it's something, it feels greater than, you know, anything that you could ever achieve materially, like trust in the journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when it's violated, it's just like, oh my God, that's like, that's like the most precious thing that just got violated, you know? And yeah. Again, you know, if, if, if um, the support is um, that way that, and actually I think we try that pretty clearly in our teaching, not to depend on your teacher. Mm -hmm. Trust your teacher is one thing. 
But even, you know, teachers make stupid things and make mistakes. Then sure. we need the students. We need the students to tell us, hey, come on, this is not looking good what you're doing. That's actually harming me or others. Please, you know, change that. So um, I think, you know, that we have had some cases here in Germany. And I'm, I'm sure it was the same in the U.S. the last years that some uh, cases of sexual misconduct in Buddhist communities became public. And you can see the difference in how people approach, uh, deal with it. So some say, well, that's, you know, anybody can say what they want or what they don't want. You know, any student can say no. Why should they not say no when the teacher approaches, approaches them and says that he wants to have sex? Because that's part of the spiritual journey. You know? Of course, you know, look at the hippie ages. Then at that time, there were, you know, lots of things going on in the communities like that. And as long as nobody's harmed, no problem, that's fine. But still, I think for some students, that's not so clear. What is my relationship to my teacher? Do I have to do anything he asks me for? Because that's good for my spiritual growth. Or can I trust my sensitivity of that feels a little bit not correct? Then what do you do? You know, Do you trust your feeling of, I think, not quite correct? Or do you think, okay, I trust in this, Maybe my teacher knows more than me and I trust in the spiritual journey. So uh, I think what is really important is you stick to your um, experience and don't get it violated by anybody, nobody, not even a spiritual teacher. And I think the trust only can grow if you are facing your teacher still from this point of, um, okay, I trust in him in this position he has, but still, this is not a perfect being. Still, this is a human being. And still, he might be deceived by some uh, motives he even or she does, even doesn't know so clearly herself. It's just part of our journey that we, we create also trouble and have difficulties. The question then is, do you take responsibility? How do you realize? What's the next step, actually? Yeah. Right. And... And uh, I, I cannot do differently because I know I, I'm such a stupid that I do the same mistakes again and again. So I cannot teach differently from that, you know. Um, and, and especially the relationship, actually. That's a subject that always appears. And it's not only student-teacher, it's also men, women, you know, any relationship you have. That's always the subject. How do you create harmony? And I think one of the things that I love, you know, I really treasure about uh, Buddhism and the, the teaching of the Buddha, right, is, you know, don't, don't follow my words, like, go figure it out for yourself. Right. <laughs> you know, I remember that Wu Bong once had a nice story, I will never forget about He was great in telling stories, actually. I don't know. Have you ever had the chance to meet Wu Bong? No, I, mean, I never did. No. no. Uh, he's actually, you know, he's really the, uh, the first student that Sung San actually had. So, uh -huh. um, he, you know, he had a brilliant mind. He could remember things. It was always fun to listen to him. And this one was, you know, somebody asked uh, a monk, you know, what's, what's this teaching of the Buddha? What, you know, what is this Dharma? What is it about? Or the path, you know, this big question, what is it about? So he just went to the side and peed. Then he went back. And then the student still looked at him and said, don't understand? No. He said, see, even such a simple thing like that, you have to do it on your own. 
So that's the key. That's the point. Yeah. So it's not about easy or difficult. Anything is up to us. Anything we have to do, and it's up fully up to our responsibility. Nobody else can take it for you. It's up to us, any of us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Arna Schaefer, Gene Pope's name, encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Quantum Centers in Dresden and Bob Bromstedt and the Zen Group in Hamburg. I'll include links for all of those centers in the show notes, as well as a link to Mind Suites, Arna's confectionery business, so you can see what he's doing with that. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the Online Sangha. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. And I hope you'll join me again next week.